as the children are headed out, turn with me to 1 Timothy 6. We're going to continue looking at our little mini-series here, Well Done, Good and Faithful Church. As we're preparing to move to our new location, we want to be a, a faithful church that understands our duties. Now, I'm going to make a fairly radical statement in a moment. So if you're a note-taker and you reserve a margin for radical statements, keep a little free space. Last Sunday evening, uh, Pastor David preached on contentment from the book of Philippians, and I was really thankful for that. We enjoyed that exhortation, and I was marveling at how the Lord chooses our pathway in sanctification as a church, and that at times He provides an unintentional emphasis for us to consider. I'd like to revisit the topic of contentment, and in fact, this is one of the major areas of the Christian life that the faithful church is to be working toward together. It's something that we work on together. And here's our radical statement. Contentment, and let me define that, peace or joyful acceptance, but contentment is the highest indicator of a mature faith in the Lord. Contentment is the highest indicator of a mature faith in the Lord. And I think we can stand on solid ground making that radical statement, and just so you don't take my word for it, let me give you ten reasons that contentment is the highest indicator of a mature faith in the Lord. Reason number one Contentment means not trusting circumstances for happiness. It means we don't trust circumstances for, for happiness. That I'm not waiting for certain things to fall into place in my life before I rest easy in the Lord. That's generally not ever going to happen. The second reason that contentment is the highest indicator. Contentment means a true belief in the sovereignty of God. It means a true belief in the sovereignty of God. Oh, lots of people say, I believe in the sovereignty of God, even as they panic their way through life. It means I truly embrace Isaiah 45, 7, when God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That I joyfully receive, Romans 8, 28. We know for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The third reason that radical statement is true. Contentment means not being shocked at disappointment. We're not shocked at disappointment. That you believe, Job 5 verse 7, that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. What does that mean? It means try making a campfire with no sparks. There's always going to be sparks. The fourth reason that statement is true. Contentment means looking beyond this life. In meaningful ways. It means looking beyond this life in meaningful ways. It, it means that you really, really believe Revelation 21.4 that God will wipe every single tear you've ever shed from your eyes. Number five, contentment means taking God at his word. It means taking God at his word. What do I mean by this? Contentment says, I believe, Psalm 119 verse 71, which says, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. And you believe that. The sixth reason that statement is true, contentment means finding your pleasure in God. You find your pleasure in God. Psalm 42, 1, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. There's a thirst, there's a hunger for God. It's the seventh reason that radical statement is true. Contentment means rightly aligned priorities. Rightly aligned priorities. Ephesians 5.15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. 
you're not going down pathways to try to find false happiness, false contentment. That's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. There's an eighth reason that statement is true. Contentment means a low view of self and a high view of God. Contentment means a low view of self and a high view of God. That you align yourself with John the Baptist when he said of Christ in John 3.30, He must increase, but I must what? Decrease. And if you decrease down to zero, you have no expectations and you can't be disappointed. Ninth reason that statement is true. Contentment means not being rocked by world events. The, the Christian who is wringing his hands over the news, A, stop watching the news, and B, you're in disobedience. You're not content. Matthew 24, 6, Jesus said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. And the 10th reason that statement is true, contentment means embracing suffering as for your good. You embrace suffering as being for your good. James 1, beginning in verse 2, James tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So again, this radical statement, contentment, which we would define as peace and joyful acceptance, is the highest indicator of a mature faith in the Lord. Now, to be very clear, a couple of things contentment is not. Contentment is not an emotion. Contentment really has nothing to do with your feelings, although true contentment is an ally to your feelings. It's possible to be suffering from a severe depression with unknown causes and yet be content because contentment isn't based on how you feel. If I hit my thumb with a hammer as hard as I can, which I've done that, I preach from experience, I, I can be content. It doesn't mean I'm happy at that moment. I, I'm not rejoicing except that I have nerves. I'm thankful for that. Contentment is not an emotion. Neither is contentment a false, fake happiness. It's not a false, fake happiness. It's not pretending that grief and pain don't exist. We have only to look to the one perfectly content man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, and join him in the Garden of Gethsemane as he cried out to his Father to see that contentment doesn't mean faking circumstantial happiness. Now, our passage this morning, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, deals with the subject of contentment. And it deals with it as related to the subject of love of money. Let's read the passage and then we're going to structure our thoughts around the structure of these five verses. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Follow along with me. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now the structure of these five verses show us a contrast between verse 6 and verse 10, a contrast between verse 7 and verse 9, and a central truth right in the middle in verse 8, the central truth that Paul is teaching. And so we're going to structure our time together around those contrasts. 
And so we'll kind of work our way from the outside inward to the middle. The first contrast we'll call the contrast of true wealth and total loss. The contrast of true wealth and total loss. Now that's the order that they're presented in the text, verse 6 and then verse 10. But for the sake of our encouragement, I'm going to start with the total loss part and move toward true wealth. The total loss is found in verse 10. Again, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, as we read through the whole passage in verses 9 and 10, you notice there was an emphasis on the sinfulness of the heart. Verse 9, the desire to be rich. Verse 9, harmful desires. Verse 10, the love of money. Verse 10, this craving. And so this is really about the heart. Now, just to briefly clear up what is often presented as truth, but is really kind of a a Christian myth, the text does not say that money is the root of all kinds of evils. Rather, it's the heart attitude of the love of money. And this heart attitude has nothing to do with how much money you have, by the way. It has nothing to do with the number of zeros in your bank account. It's a heart attitude. Now, the English Standard Version here rightly translates root with the indefinite article a root of all kinds of evil versus the more traditional older translations which sometimes say the root of all kinds of evil. The King James Version, New King James Version, and several others use the root. So which one is it? Well, we kind of balance this out here. There's a balance that's required to say that the love of money is the root, the singular root of all kinds of evil is overstating the place of that sin. But on the other hand, The Greek sentence here places root at the beginning of the sentence. That gives it great emphasis. In other words, the love of money is not the the singular and only root of all kinds of evil, but it is in a small, horrible class of a few root sins which have devastating consequences. This is the category, for example, of the major abominations to the Lord found in Proverbs uh, chapter 16, rather, or chapter 6, verse 16, that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Those would be sins in a class by themselves that cause all kinds of evil. And the love of money would be included in that very small class. What is the sin of the love of money? It is the sin of covetousness, of wanting with all of my heart that which I do not have, and worse, being willing to sin to get it or sin to think about it. Now, you might be asking, how can a wealthy person with all kinds of money be guilty guilty of wanting what they do not have? Well, the answer is simple, because they still want more. It's never enough. This is the drive. This is their God. It's never enough. Other little side note here, what's the difference between a person who successfully acquires wealth or anything else for that matter and the person guilty of covetousness, of the love of money? What's the difference? It's only one difference, and that is the attitude of the heart. And only God judges that, and ultimately this becomes a salvation issue. How can it be a salvation issue? How can it be that important? Who cares if I love money? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10 says, The greedy will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're starting to see, and we're going to see even more, that this is a a deeply, deeply, eternally serious issue. 
In fact, Paul lists here in verse 10 two horrific consequences of habitual covetousness. The first one is they have wandered away from the faith. They've wandered away from the faith in the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. The faith, that phrase normally refers to the body of our belief, of what we believe in saving faith in Jesus Christ. They've wandered away from saving faith. And what does this mean? It means they were around Christianity, they were around Christians, they even went to church, but they were never in Christ. And the larger context here, if you recall from last time, Paul has just excoriated false teachers in the church who are teaching these odd new doctrines to fleece the sheep of great wealth. He's saying that they're not believers. They're not believers. And and by the way, this is a passive verb. They've wandered away. It means they've been enticed away by riches themselves. They're, 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 They're enamored by this. And they will do everything and anything in their power to get wealth. Your mind probably wanders to Luke chapter 18 where Jesus told the rich young ruler to give up all of his wealth in order to follow Christ. Now, he wasn't giving a works-based salvation pathway. Uh, He wasn't saying that, that the way to be saved is to give up wealth. He was exhorting him to stop worshiping the idols in his life. And the idol for this rich young ruler was his money. And he wouldn't do it. Because he loved his wealth more than he he loved Christ. And and he went away sad because he had much wealth. And he wouldn't give it up. I contrast this to another wealthy man. The Gospels call him Levi. We know him more popularly as Matthew. Matthew chapter 8 records that this wealthy tax collector was in his tax booth. And Jesus said, come, follow me. And, And Matthew left his tax booth with piles of money next to him. And followed Christ and he never looked back. There's no record of him turning around and telling an assistant, hey, go stick this in the bank and then I'll follow Christ. He just left it. And there's a second horrific consequence of the love of money, of this covetousness. They've pierced themselves with many pangs. This is quite literally a suicidal tendency. Pangs, griefs, pains, agonies, and pierced. It's a violent word. It speaks of impaling. They've impaled themselves. It's something they've done to themselves. They've impaled themselves with with sorrow, with regret, with broken relationships, with pain. The love of money has opened a Pandora's box of trouble. That's why it's called a root of all kinds of evil. And piercing themselves, this suicidal nature of ruining your life, For the love of money, it ends with a wasted life spent in the pursuit of more and more and more. And ultimately, their life has been a total loss. And here's the irony. At the end of their life, they will lose everything that they worked for. Contrast the total loss with true wealth. True wealth in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, in the very short sentence here, Paul gives a two-part formula to true wealth, to real treasure. The first part of this formula, godliness. Godliness. Now, if you remember from last time, in verse 5, it says that these false teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And we said that that's a false godliness. That's following after the fables and the myths and the teachings which don't bring sanctification But instead, they bring division and heartache and angst and worry, even anger and slander. They cause all kinds of problems. It's a polluted faith 
to lead to greedy desires. It's a so-called godliness. These are the ones that 2 Timothy 3, 5 says they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. They're really churchy. They say Jesus-like words, but they're not godly. But in verse 6, this is true godliness. And when Paul writes of godliness, it's not complex. It means you believe the truth and you live what you believe. That's godliness. Your life reflects what you believe. Godliness is measured quite simply in obedience to the scripture. If you won't obey, then by definition you are not being godly. If you don't want to imitate God, if you don't want to obey God, if you want to reinterpret scripture to fit a cultural norm, then by definition you are not godly. Pastor told me once about a a church member that he was worried about. He he said, "Uh, she's mature, she's just not obedient. No, you can't be both. If you're obedient, you're godly. If you're disobedient, you're not godly. There's part two of this formula for true wealth. First, there's godliness. The second part is contentment. Contentment. This is a compound Greek word, and at its base, it means self-sufficient. Now, before you think, oh no, Paul has gone woke on us here, self-sufficient, Paul steals a word. And, you know, we have wonderful words that our culture has tried to steal. Well, Paul does the opposite. This word for self-sufficient was a very important word in secular uh, stoic and cynical philosophies of Paul's day. This self-sufficiency, the sufficiency in self, was considered a crowning virtue. But Paul steals it. He co-opts it. He transforms this very familiar term to mean a deep and abiding satisfaction with your circumstances that it's no longer self-sufficiency, it is God-sufficiency. That God is sufficient. And because God is sufficient, my circumstances, you ready for this, literally don't matter. It doesn't matter. It's the same word used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. This is an abounding peace. This is a deep-seated trust in the Lord. If I could put it this way, this is a detached, objective curiosity that you're seated in the bleachers watching the disaster of your own life unfold. Saying, as you're eating popcorn, I'm really wondering, boy, that looks horrible. Oh, here comes a truck. Oh, that's bad. This is going to be good. I'm going to eat it faster. That you, you literally sit back and you just watch your own life unfold. Ooh, oh, that was bad. But God is faithful because you can look and see the scoreboard. Oh, I win. Because God wins. It's a bounding piece. It's seeing a good ending before you know what it is. It's a refusal to be panicked in the face of anything, really. This is one of the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Love, joy, and what? Peace. And what do you get with the one-two punch of godliness plus contentment? Not just gain, you get great gain. If we, if we transliterated this Greek clause, godliness with contentment is mega wealth. It's mega wealth. It's massive prosperity. It's unspeakable riches. It's immeasurable treasure. Because you have reached a point where nothing can hurt you. And so Paul gives this simple formula for true wealth, genuine godliness, the pursuit of holiness and Christ-likeness, 
based in the genuine gospel of grace, plus contentment, a God-sufficiency in which peace abounds because of an abiding trust in the Lord. That's true wealth. And so we have the contrast of true wealth in verse 6 versus total loss in verse 10. Paul gives a second contrast in verses 7 and 9. We'll call this the contrast of heaven and hell. The contrast of heaven and hell. Now again, I think it'd be better to start with the somber reality and end with the glorious reality. So we'll start with the second part, hell, in verse 9. Verse 9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who desire to be rich. Desire has a verb structure that indicates a deep personal yearning. It's something you you long for within yourself. It's a drive that you have. And I would compare this, for example, to a friend I have in the faith who is in his 80s now, and he only had one skill he discovered when he graduated from high school. He had no skills except one thing. He could sell anything with four wheels. That's what he discovered. Fast forward 60 years and he owns 10 or 12 car dealerships and has made more money than he knows what to do with. I have had the chance to speak to this man. And to this day, he's like, I don't really know how this happened. It just sort of did. He has no love of money whatsoever. He just happens to be gifted at making a lot of it. There's no desire in him. To be very clear, the desire to be rich is not, simply, is not the same as simply the rich. It is possible to be a person of means and to be a wonderful resource in the body of Christ. In fact, later in the chapter, in verses 17 through 19, we're going to deal with that very person, the godly, wealthy person and what their responsibility is in the church. But Paul says here in verse 9 that those who desire to be rich fall into this trap. This word fall into is usually associated with incredibly treacherous spiritual danger. 1 Timothy 3, 6, an elder, quote, must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That's a dangerous place to be. Matthew 12, 18 speaks of a sheep falling into a pit and now it's in great danger. In Luke 6, 39 Jesus basically says that an unsaved person can't accuse another unsaved person of sin and both of them are headed toward destruction. Here's how he says it. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? There's two unbelievers arguing about morality. They're both going down. This is the same word that Jesus used in Luke 10, 36 to speak of the man who fell among robbers, who was beaten and left on the roadside. And it's the same word used in Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul's point is the heart's desire to be rich is something to be terrified of. To be deathly afraid of. And just to make sure we get the point, he lists three dangers. First danger is temptation. Temptation is a self-inflicted temptation. The psalmist warns us in Psalm 62, verse 10, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Psalm 49, 6 warns of the temptation, quote, to trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Psalm 52, 7, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So it's a temptation. There's a second danger. It's like a snare. 
It is a snare, a trap, or put it this way, a baited fish hook. Paul uses this word two other times in the pastoral epistles, both of them having to do with the snare of the devil. 1 Timothy 3, 7, 2 Timothy 2, 26. And so we would assume that the devil is behind the snare. He's the one baiting the hook. He is the one setting the trap. Proverbs eleven twenty eight warns, whoever trusts in his riches will fall. They will get hooked. The trap will be sprung. And so there's the danger of temptation, the, the danger of the snare. Then there's the danger of senseless and harmful desires. Senseless and harmful desires. Let me start with the harmful part. Harmful desire speaks of any desire which brings harm to you. Anything in Scripture from desire for man-centered preaching, 2 Timothy 4.3, it's a lust for hearing what you want to hear, all the way to sinful sexual desire, 1 Thessalonians 4.5, and everything in between. A harmful desire, something that's going to hurt you. But these desires are also senseless desires. And this proves something. It proves that greed is irrational. It's irrational. Greed for anything is irrational. And and it's possible to be greedy for much more than money. You can be greedy for success, for power, for position, for perfect geography, for perfect political climate, for perfected relationships. You can be greedy for anything. But why is greed irrational? It's irrational because ultimately you will lose completely the very thing you are greedy for. You'll lose it all every single time. Greed is irrational because you will not keep one penny of what you're lusting after. Now you might be asking, how does this equate to the seriousness of hell, of eternal judgment? Well, he says at the end of verse 9 that these desires plunge people into ruin and destruction The only other time this word plunge is used in the New Testament is in Luke 5, verse 7. It speaks of a boat sinking into the sea. And it plunges them first into ruin. It's used three other times by Paul in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5, 5, to speak of the death of your body. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, to speak of the wrath of God poured out on earth when Christ returns. And 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, to speak of eternal doom in hell. Ruin. Guess what? Destruction's even worse. It's even worse. This is the same word used to describe the coming Antichrist as the son of destruction in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. It's the same word used to call Judas the son of destruction in John 17.12. It's the same word in Matthew 7.13 to speak of the destruction of those who go down the broad path, which is the way of rejecting the gospel into destruction. It's the same word which encapsulates the doom of those who are about to go to hell in Revelation 17.8, Revelation 17.11, that they are going to be destroyed. It's the same word that Peter uses five times in rapid machine gun fire style to describe false prophets and false teachers. 2 Peter 2.1, false teachers will arise in the church who are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Two verses later, those who exploit the church for greed, he says their destruction is not asleep. 2 Peter 3, 7 speaks of the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. 2 Peter 3, 16, those who twist the scriptures for their own gain do so, quote, to their own destruction. This is a word which not only clearly speaks of evil, it speaks of wickedness, it speaks of eternal damnation and judgment. 
This is not a Christian who's gone slightly off track. The pursuit of wealth is a sinking ship. It's a baited hook. It's a pit of judgment. It is a one-way ticket to hell. And it ends with being buried in the same size casket as the poor man. And then facing the judgment of God for a life of idolatry. But now Paul contrasts hell with heaven. Back in verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. I love how quick that is. It's the picture of life like this. That's it. It's a breath. It's a moment. For you who are a little bit older, do you ever look in the mirror and you're surprised because you expect to see somebody 30 years younger and you wonder what happened? (laughs) This picture affirms Psalm 103, 15 and 16. As for the man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. There are apps now that you can put on your phone where you can put a picture of yourself on this app and it'll age the picture of you quickly. You don't need an app. Just look in the mirror for a couple of days. It's happening so fast. The common saying, you can't take it with you, that's based on this verse. We bring absolutely nothing into the world. A baby born to the richest of families is just as naked as the one born in abject poverty and the wealthiest person takes nothing with him just as the poorest person takes nothing with him. So what should this cause? Should it cause worry? Should it cause despair? Should it cause horror? No, for the Christian, you ready for this? It causes worship. It causes worship. How do we know this? Well, Job gives us this lesson. In Job 1, beginning in verse 21, after God had allowed Satan to kill Job's children, 10 of them, And destroy all of his wealth. Everything he had that meant anything to him is gone. Job said this. Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked shall I return. Meaning return to the earth. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. What does he say next? Blessed be the name of the Lord. That for the believer in God. Through Christ. This quickness of life doesn't cause worry despair or horror it causes worship you know this job's total acknowledgement of, of god's sovereign rule the lord gives all that we have the lord takes away all that we have and so what's the result god is all powerful and i am all powerless the point of verse seven is this our beginning and our ending should govern our in-betweening Paul shared his heart with the Philippian church about this, his longing to continue the work of the gospel on the earth versus his longing to go to heaven. It was kind of a contest for him. And he says poignantly in Philippians 1.23, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That is far better. Why is it far better? Well, let me make the same point that Paul makes here In verse 7, that we cannot take anything out of the world. You will take nothing out of the world. Let me tell you everything you're going to leave behind. You will leave behind your sin. You will leave behind your tears. You will leave behind your sorrow. You will leave behind trauma. You will leave behind pain. 
You will leave behind disappointment, broken relationships. You will leave behind every unsolved mystery of your life. You will leave behind physical infirmities. You'll leave behind mental anguish, spiritual doubts, emotional depression and anxiety. You'll leave behind fear and terror and worry and darkness and grief, wasted time, grievous errors of judgment, hurt feelings, injustice, unfairness, injury, regret, torment, burdens, unhappiness, distress, and gloom. You leave it all behind. And when you go home to heaven, you'll be greeted with the same scene that the Apostle John saw in Revelation 4 when he says, at once I was in the Spirit. Because when you die, at once you're in the Spirit. And here's what you'll see. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Then before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Why does the Christian not care that we can't take anything with us? Because we don't have anything we want to take with us. We don't care because this is not our home. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at where? Home with the Lord. You are staying right now in a cheap and disposable roadside motel. Costs $11 a night. (laughs) This life, why would you be greedy for the towels that could rub the skin off an elephant? Why would you desire the 10 thread count sheets with which Moses himself was wrapped as a baby? Why would you... Be greedy for the pillows which sink in the middle and leave your head on the granite slab that they call a mattress. Why why would you want a shower where the water dribbles out two feet below your head and it only has two temperatures, glacier, cold, or volcanic lava? (laughs) Why would you yearn for that wonderful carpet that was installed during the Civil War? (laughs) Why would you be excited about the complimentary shampoo that wouldn't form a lather if you put it in a blender? And why would you be excited about the complimentary soap that smells like lavender cat? (laughs) What do you want to do when you leave that place? You want to go where? Home. Home. 
Why would you yearn for all that? Jesus said this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Leave the $11 a night motel behind. God's going to set fire to it anyway. We've seen the contrast of true wealth and total loss, the contrast of heaven and hell. And finally, right here in the middle of this passage, I'd like to show you the profile of a contented believer. The profile of a contented believer. The central verse in this little, little uh, literary unit, verse 8. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, does this mean that we can't or, or shouldn't enjoy the things of this life which God gives us? Of course not. It's just that for the contented believer, these aren't the things that give contentment. These are just the things that get used. Listen to the wisdom from Scripture. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9 is a prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, the wise believer lives a balanced life. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew six eleven. Give us this day our daily bread, not give us in my lifetime my daily bread. We're not ever really told to pray for lifetime provision. And it's really quite logical. If God provides for you every day, on the last day, he provided for your life. Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What would be some of the common elements to a profile of a contented believer who is completely satisfied if he has food and clothing? Well, we have a list. Turn with me just for a moment back a couple of pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 16, I think this is the closest the Bible comes to what we would call bullet points. And in these bullet points, Paul gives some common elements which form the contented and satisfied believer. And they're short, they're brief, they're easy. 1 Thessalonians five sixteen, he says, rejoice always. Rejoice always. This is a decision to rejoice in the Lord, to rejoice in the gospel, to rejoice in the cross, to rejoice in the resurrection, to rejoice in salvation. Verse 17, pray without ceasing that the contented believer's life is characterized by prayer and constant communion with God. You're, you're constantly in communion with God. You're, you're constantly speaking to Him. In verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That the contented believer doesn't gripe about everything and instead gives thanks in obedience to God's will and he thinks of things to give thanks for continually. In verse 19, do not quench the spirit. He doesn't resist bearing the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace. He doesn't resist that. In verse 20, do not despise prophecies. He's saturated in the Word of God, in the revelation of God through Scripture. In verse 21, but test everything, hold fast what is good. He exercises wisdom and discernment. 
In verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. He isn't enamored by wickedness. He isn't enamored by sin. He's not struggling with greed. He's not struggling with lust. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's heavenly minded. He's thinking towards heaven. For you younger believers, I can tell you that is the key to living a life that is peaceful. Think heavenly. And and I know you might be saying, but there's lots of things in this life I want to do. Could I remind you of the last verse of one of our favorite hymns, Amazing Grace, that when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, I don't think you're going to say, I'm making this part up. I don't think you're going to say, I wish I had gone to Hawaii 10,000 years ago. You're heavenly minded. And look at this theology. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He has assurance of salvation because God is faithful. Now, when Paul says, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content, I have a suspicion. I suspect that he is using a literary device known as hyperbole, exaggeration. Because are we ever really reduced to only food and clothing as believers in in Christ, even in this life? We're not. We have immense treasures. Let me just list a few of them for you. Genesis 1 gives us a treasure, and that is the knowledge of our Creator God. Do you realize that when the world doesn't know where they came from and tries to avoid where they came from, you know exactly where you came from. You were created by the God of the universe. We have the treasure given to us in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, which gives us the character of the Creator God. We know His character because of the Ten Commandments. In Leviticus, we have the treasure of the holiness of our Creator God, and and we're told in Leviticus to be holy because God is holy. Numbers chapter 6 tells us God's desire for His people The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What a gift, what a treasure to know that's God's will for you. Deuteronomy tells us that God has always intended to send a Messiah. God told Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. Joshua 24, 15 gives us the model of a Christian home. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The book of Judges gives us the knowledge that the world yearns for a righteous king, and we ought to also. Judges 17, 18, 19, and 21 each say, in those days there was no king in Israel. Chapter 17 and 21 go on to say, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It pushes us toward a future with Christ. The book of Ruth gives us assurance that God saves outsiders, that he saves the least of the least of the least. 1 Samuel 2 tells us that God is working his kingdom program when a young woman, long before there was ever a king in Israel, prays prophetically that a strong, anointed, judging king is coming to the earth. 2 Samuel 7 tells us that this king will be descended from David and will rule the world forever and ever, and so we rejoice in that. 1 Kings gives us a an imperfect example of what this king will be like in the person of Solomon, a king whose name means peace, who ruled in peace as the preeminent king in the world. 
Second Kings gives us the knowledge that God does judge, he does punish sin, and his justice is certain. First Chronicles 1 and 2 gives assurance that God's covenants with Abraham and with David are still in force, they're still progressing, they're still going all the way to the end of the age. Second Chronicles tells us that although sin may seem to hopelessly win and end in the judgment of God with Israel decimated and in exile, Ezra and Nehemiah then tell us that God never forgets his promises and that if he promised to rescue his people even from his own judgment, he will do that. We get the book of Esther that tells us that the hand of God seems invisible, but he's acting behind the scenes to do exactly what he wants with you. Job tells us that in the midst of tremendous suffering, God is sovereign and he will write a happy ending for all who are his. Psalms tells us that worship is our primary concern in this life. The longest of all the books in the Bible ends on this glorious note. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Psalm, Proverbs rather, gives us the wisdom to live as covenant-keeping believers in Christ with excellence and obedience to the Lord. Ecclesiastes tells us to enjoy life, but don't hang on to it too tightly. Song of Solomon gloriously describes God's gift of human marriage and the word to delight in it and how to do that. Isaiah tells us that God judges sin and he gives grace and includes many offers of salvation from sin. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Isaiah 55.1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And Isaiah gives us our best early glimpse at our own suffering Savior in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jeremiah 31 tells us that it has always been God's plan to bring a new covenant of which we are now partakers in Christ. Lamentations points us to the grace of God even in the midst of pain, anguish, and suffering, and hopelessness. Ezekiel reminds us that someday God is sending a great prince, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rule this world. Daniel tells us that God is sovereign over all the affairs of every nation, and in the end, he will raise the dead to face judgment or to face life, depending on their standing before God. Hosea tells us that God radically saves the lost, even though they were whoring after other gods. Joel tells us that although the judgment of God is coming, he will pour out his spirit on his elect. Amos tells us that someday the world will be ripe and fertile and peaceful and prosperous and abundant when our Savior reigns among us. Obadiah tells us that God will judge and possess wicked nations and restore Israel. Jonah tells us that God saves Gentiles. Micah 4 tells us that when the king comes from heaven, nations shall not lift up sword against nation any longer. Nahum tells us that God's people should rejoice that judgment is coming to the wicked. Habakkuk chapter 3 tells us that even though wickedness seems to abound, we will wait on the Lord for he will triumph in the end. Zephaniah 3 tells us that when King Jesus returns, he will rejoice over you, his people. Haggai gives us assurance that God wants to dwell with his people. That is his goal. That is the end game. Zechariah 14 tells us that someday Christ will return and set up a glorious kingdom. Malachi assures us that the story of Israel, that when God sets up his electing love on someone, it is forever. And he'll prove this by sending a messenger to prepare the way of the Lord to come to the earth. Matthew introduces us to the messenger. We know him as John the Baptist, who is announcing the arrival of the Savior, who is the Lamb of God, to be the sacrifice for sin. The Gospel of Mark reminds us that our Savior is a humble servant who came to die in our place. 
Luke reminds us that the least of the least of the least, those the very farthest from the kingdom of God may be saved. John assures us in no uncertain terms that our Savior is God, the Son of God. Acts encourages us with the work of the Holy Spirit among His people. Romans 8 gives us confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. 1 Corinthians exhorts us to holiness and obedience. 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us of the glorious gospel that saves us. Galatians keeps us on track saying, stay with the gospel, stay with the gospel, stay with the gospel. Ephesians 1 describes the glory of the triune God who is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit and that we possess every spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, we're wealthy in Christ. Philippians fills us with joy because of the gospel. Colossians 3 tells us how to worship God in song and in the word. 1 Thessalonians 4 reminds us that soon Christ will take us home. 2 Thessalonians warns the world of the coming Antichrist and comforts us that he can never hurt us. 1 Timothy tells us that godly shepherds in the church are a great blessing to guide us through this life. 2 Timothy 4 tells those shepherds how to do that. Titus chapter 2 explains how to live the normal daily Christian life. Philemon exhorts us to forgive just as God has forgiven us. Hebrews exalts Christ as the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin. James gives us the wisdom to live as new covenant believers in Christ. 1 Peter explains how to live holy lives in a time of suffering. 2 Peter 1 tells us that we have, ready for this, all things that pertain to life and godliness. You're wealthy. 1 John yells at us that all true believers love one another. 2 John exhorts us to abide in the gospel of Christ. 3 John keeps us mission-focused on the work of the gospel in a dying world. Jude gives us our purpose for life. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. And Revelation assures us with the words of Christ himself in Revelation 22, 20, surely I am coming soon. I think when Paul said all we have is food and clothing, he's kidding. Because according to Romans 8, 16 and 17, we are children of God and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You are the lords and ladies of the kingdom of God. You just don't have any of your stuff yet. According to 1 Peter 1.4, you have an inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Where is it? Kept in heaven for you. Let me give you two applications and they're both fast. First one, if you love money, if you love money, you do not belong to Christ. If you love money, you do not belong to Christ. Paul could not be more clear in our text. If you do belong to Christ, beware of looking like you don't. This is our second application. If you do belong to Christ, beware of looking like you don't. How does covetousness show up in a believer? How does the love of money show up? Several ways. It shows up in having a view of money as belonging to me. Psalm 24 verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Fullness thereof is a fancy Bible way of saying everything else. None of it's yours. Covetousness shows up by constantly talking about and thinking about money simply beyond being responsible with the resources God has given you. 
It shows up with a pursuit of wealth to the exclusion of godly priorities such as your marriage, your family, gospel service. It is putting that career ladder up against a building that ends in a pit. It shows up in the stinginess in giving to the work of the gospel. Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Covetousness shows up in the refusal or an inability to trust the Lord for provision. There's no concept of living by faith. Yes, we work hard, but still living in constant fear of not having enough. Not one of you will starve to death and go to heaven and have all the angels there going, we're sorry about that. We're not sure what happened here. This wasn't supposed to happen yet. We had a meal truck on the way and it broke down. I don't know what happened. And covetousness shows up by defining wants as needs. Paul narrowed it down pretty far, food and clothing. Instead, I return to the words of Christ, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, meaning unbelievers, seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I think the most theologically accurate conclusion we could come to is one word. You ready? Relax. Relax. Don't get to the end of your life having worried your way through it. You're going to die anyway. Either die content or die worried. Relax. Did you know that the Christian life is meant to be enjoyed? Did you know that? Enjoy your Christian life. Relax. Sit back in the stands and watch the disaster of your life unfold. Eat popcorn and say, wow, that's interesting. I wonder how the Lord's going to get me out of that one. That's contentment. Do you think that if Job could have looked at the end of the book of Job, he would have had a little less trouble? Oh, look at this. I get back double everything. That would have been easy. You have a your life final chapter. God has already written it. So our theological conclusion, say it after me. Relax. Relax. Let's pray. Our Father, we of all people can be joyful. We of all people can be content. The end is certain. We bring nothing into this world. We'll take nothing out of it. We'll leave behind every pain, every sorrow, every trial, every sin, every mistake, every broken relationship, every unsolved mystery. It all gets left behind and we are greeted immediately with the glories of our inheritance. I pray that that buoys our souls. I pray for these precious beloved saints here that they would walk in peace and that they would look ahead to the end with a smile, with a twinkle in their eye, knowing that we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. Let that rule the day. Let us do what the psalmist said in Psalm 4.8, that I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. We thank you for the peace and the contentment given through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.